You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we have been looking at this topic of work as God intended it. And today, I'm pretty excited about this sermon because today we are going to address what is probably the single greatest myth concerning work. And to put it bluntly, the myth is this, that what I do matters to God more than what you do. That what I do as a pastor is somehow more significant, somehow more important, somehow more meaningful than what you do as a barista, as an IT specialist, as an engineer, as a teacher, as a CEO, as a concrete guy. I don't know what you do, Bobby. Um, (laughs) As a banker. There is this myth that exists, and I want to be clear. I don't believe the myth. In fact, I hate the myth. The problem is so many people buy the myth. In fact, I would argue many of you in this room actually buy the myth, whether you realize it or not. See, the myth is often more insidious than the blunt way I put it. And what I mean by that is this. If I was to push you, if we were to have a conversation, I bet I could get you to agree that you believe There are some things in this world that are spiritual or sacred. And at the same time, you would argue that there are some things in this world that are merely physical or merely of the earth. We call that secular. And again, if I pushed you, if I pushed you and we had this conversation, I bet I could get you to agree that somehow you believe that these things we deem as spiritual are somehow of greater significance, greater meaning, greater value to God than the secular stuff. Now, I doubt any of you would ever go so far as to say God doesn't care at all about the secular stuff. But I bet some of you in this room would argue that you would say the secular stuff is of lesser value than the sacred stuff. Hence, The belief that my job is more important than your job. Now, the problem with this line of thinking is just rampant in the church. And I was trying to think of a way to express it. And then I was reading through one of the books I picked up to help me prep for this series. And I came across the way this pastor wrote it. His name is John Mark Comer. I've referenced him a couple times in this series so far. His book, Garden City, is phenomenal. And in this book, I'm actually lifting a couple things from this book um, for this sermon. But in this book, he nails the problem with this type of secular sacred thinking. He says this. The problem with this widespread, ubiquitous, domineering, destructive way of thinking. Do you think he's relatively passionate about this subject? (laughs) That there is a difference between the secular and the sacred is that, well, by this definition, most of life is secular. The sacred stuff is a dinky slice of the pie. 
Going to church, praying, reading the Bible, evangelism, what is that? 5% of our lives max? And that's if we're really spiritual? Most of life, the other 95% is spent going to the grocery store or walking the dog or cutting your toenails or reading your book at the park or doing yoga with your wife or eating a burrito and then feeling bloated afterwards, but less so if you just finish doing yoga. <laughs> this is the stuff of everyday life. And so much of life is just mundane. There's nothing glamorous about it. Guys, we laugh at this. We laugh at the absurdity of what he says, and yet at the same time, we know it's right. We know he's right, and yet we continue to somehow buy into this myth that only 5% of our life matters to God, and the other 95% barely blips on his radar. Why do we do this? Do you understand this line of thinking is so destructive? This line of thinking has continued to worm its way into the church in so many different ways. And I tell you, I hate this myth. And I hate what it has done to the church. And so today, my goal is really quite simple. I want to blow this myth out of the water. I want to destroy it. I want to, as my three-year-old nephew is fond of saying, I want to smack it in the face, okay? I want to wipe it off the face of the planet. I want to free you from it. Now, to do that, we got to do a couple things today, okay? A couple things. First, unfortunately, sorry, buckle up. I know some of you are going to hate this, Stephen Taylor. I'm thinking about you here. I got to give you a history lesson, okay? And I will admit the history lesson is a little more academic in nature, but the truth is we need to understand where this myth comes from, where it originates, because you're going to have to see it's not from the Bible. In fact, and this will lead us to the second thing we're going to do, this myth is so counter-biblical. It's so opposite of what the Bible actually says that we need to spend some time in the scriptures realizing this. And then finally, once we have kind of been set free from this myth, once we have heard what the scripture has to say about how God cares about all of life, we can begin to reflect on the simple question of how do we honor God with the mundane, everyday, ordinary activities of our life? Sound like a plan? So again, here's what we're doing. History lesson. I'm not even going to say brief. We're probably going 10 minutes. History lesson. Okay, buckle up. History lesson, then Bible study, and then out of the Bible study, some reflection. Okay, but first, the history lesson. Uh, the question is, where did this line of thinking come? As I said, it was clearly not from the Bible. In fact, if you were to turn to the Bible, and specifically if you were to look up in Hebrew the definition of the word spiritual, you're going to find this. Okay, hold on. Can we throw the word spiritual up in Hebrew? Oh, that's right. It's not in there. <laughs> three quarters of the Bible. For three quarters of the Bible, there is no word for spiritual. And that's because in the Bible, there is this understanding, at least in the Hebrew context, that all of life is spiritual. All of life matters to God. Yes, there is talk of the Spirit of God in the Bible, and there is talk of the actions of the Spirit on people. 
where spirit brings us to life. But from a Hebrew perspective, all of life is sacred. All of life is spiritual. All of life matters to God. From the way we worship, even down to how we deal with mold in our kitchen. I'm not joking. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you'll notice what I'm talking about. Leviticus constantly weaves together these themes of what we deem as spiritual and sacred and shows there's no difference. It'll one moment be talking all about sacrifice and what, uh, how we worship God. And then the next moment, it'll be talking about how you're supposed to keep your hair and what you're supposed to do with mold on your sweaters. I'm not kidding. It's all in there because from a Hebrew perspective, all of life is sacred. There is no sacred secular divide. Now, when you get into the New Testament, you are going to discover the word spiritual is in the Bible. In fact, it primarily comes up in Paul's writings, but the word for spiritual in Greek is this. Can we throw that up, please? It's the word pneumatikos. Pneumatikos, and pneumatikos simply means to be animated by the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit. If you look at this word, it's where we get the English word pneumatic or wind-powered. If you are going to use a pneumatic tool, it means it's a wind-powered tool. And this is kind of the same idea. You and I are to be Spirit-empowered. According to the New Testament, we don't live by our power. We don't live by our efforts. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us to empower us to live as God intended. This idea, though, that somehow spirituality is this esoteric, ethereal, otherworldly concept, the idea that we normally think of when we think of spiritual, guys, it's just not in the Bible. Another interesting fact, I just think this is fascinating. If you were to look at the way Paul uses the word spiritual, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 2 does this beautiful job. Paul categorizes all of humanity into two groups. One group is spiritual. They're called Christians because Christians are animated by the Spirit. The rest are non-Christians because they don't have the Spirit. But spiritual, again, is not some esoteric, ethereal, otherworldly concept or construct. And so the question is, where do we get that idea? Where do we get this idea that there's this spiritual realm and this physical realm? It's not from the Bible. So where do we get it? Well, actually, we get it from a Greek philosopher named Plato. Not Plato, okay? That's the stuff your kids play with. Plato, the Greek philosopher in the 4th century BC, and if you aren't familiar with Plato or you don't remember back, if you ever had the chance to study philosophy, Plato was a guy who believed and was highly influential with this belief. Plato believed that there was two realms. There was the physical realm where we live, which is corrupted and a shadow of what he also believed was the spiritual realm. From Plato's understanding, the spiritual realm was good and pure, and everything in the physical realm was just a merely corrupted shadow version of the spiritual realm. From Plato's understanding, his goal was to escape the the bindings or the trappings of the physical world and transcendently step into the spiritual world. If you want to dig more into this, if you're kind of a nerd about the whole thing, the whole idea is called platonic realism. That's the philosophical concept. And this idea is so pervasive in modern Western culture still to this day. 
And it started because of the church. See, what happened is when the church got its start, as you know, many people came to faith, including many Greek Greek, Greek Christians who had been prominently influenced by philosophers such as Plato. And specifically, men like Eusebius and Justin the Martyr and St. Augustine were so profoundly influenced by Plato that when they started to write about issues of theology or they started to defend Christianity, they did so from a Platonic worldview. They took their understanding of Scripture, and instead of reading it from the Hebrew worldview, as it was originally intended, they imported their Greek worldview onto the text. Now, at first, this isn't a major deal, right? They're just going to minorly influence the way we interpret different things, like the way we understand heaven, the way we understand work, or whatever it is. But where this becomes just awful is when people stopped reading the Bible and only began to read men who were theologians who had been influenced by Eusebius and St. Augustine and, and Justin the Martyr, who had been influenced by Plato, that we begin to realize we're actually getting very far removed from what the text says in our theological interpretation. We have layers upon layers upon layers of philosophical interpretation that prevent us from being able to read Scripture as it was originally intended to be. And especially in the Middle Ages, when people just completely stopped reading the Bible and weren't very philosophically astute, this became a rampant problem. And it began to infect all areas of church. One of the primary areas, you can probably pick this up, is the church's interpretation of heaven. Heaven became this place that we were trying to escape into. It was this other world. This world's going to hell, for lack of a better word. It's burning. We got to get off this ship, right? And we need to transcendently transform ourselves or transport ourselves into this heavenly spiritual realm. Problem is, that's completely counter to what the Bible says. The Bible says we're not going to be transported somewhere. It says we're going to be resurrected. It says that heaven is going to come down to earth, that God is going to restore and refresh his creation, He's going to fix it. He's not going to blow it up and say, well, let's just start over here. That's not the biblical worldview. But another way this platonic realism began to infect the church was this belief, again, that certain jobs are of higher value than others. Because, again, if you understand platonic realism to believe that there is a, a good spiritual world and that the rest is just a shadow-corrupted shade of that good world, it became believed that all the jobs that dealt with this spiritual realm were of higher value than those that dealt with the physical realm. And so in the Middle Ages especially, and you know this, priests and popes and nuns and abbots and monks began to be viewed with this higher calling than merchants and midwives. We forgot about them. It was as if they weren't as significant and we elevated the priesthood. So again, this is where we get this myth that what I do is more important than what you do. And the key is you need to understand it's not in here. Instead, we can thank this guy for it. A guy, by the way, who was 400 years before Jesus showed up talking about 
who never knew Jesus. Okay. Now, it wasn't until the 1500s when men like Martin Luther, for whom this church gets its name, and and other reformers like, like John Calvin started to actually pick up the Bible again. And as they started to read the Bible, they began to discover that what it says tells us that this idea of the secular sacred divide, it's just not in there. But even more importantly, they began to realize that this secular sacred divide is so counter to what the Bible actually says. There was never intended to be this divide. In fact, when you go and read the grand story of Scripture, when you read this thing cover to cover, you quickly discover God's big picture plan was for all of us to serve as his priests, all of us to serve as his representatives to the world. The problem is, that's not what happened. And in fact, I know some of you are beginning to go, well, hold on, John. Hold on, because I remember in the Old Testament, there is a distinct difference between the priests and the laity. There is a distinct difference between the holy people and the rest of the people. And you're right. But do you remember why that distinction exists? It's because the people continued to screw up royally and they begged God for intermediaries to go between them and him. They needed someone to intercede. They didn't believe themselves worthy enough of being able to engage God in that way. But again, this was never part of the plan. God's intention from the beginning was that all of us would be his priests. All of us would be his holy, special possession. In fact, one of the best examples of this is right out of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, if you're familiar with it, is occurs right after God has taken Israel out of Egypt. And literally, it's the chapter before God gives the Ten Commandments. It's a very important moment. God, they are at Mount Sinai, and God is about to speak to all of his people. And this is what God says. Again, Exodus 19, starting in verse 5. I'll throw it on the screen for you. God says, Now if you obey me fully, and if you keep my covenant then out of all the nations, all of you will be my treasured possessions. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, again, as you look at this, you need to realize God's plan was not just for some select few to accomplish this role. His hope was that all of Israel would fulfill this purpose. (laughs) The great irony, though, is this. They all agree in chapter 19 and go, yeah, God, we're down. We're going to do this. No problem. Great. And then you literally flip over to chapter 20, and God starts going through what we call the Ten Commandments. The very first thing Israel does when they get to the end of the Ten Commandments is they realize how unworthy they are. And they immediately begin to go, please, dear God, put somebody between us and you. And they beg Moses to serve as their intermediary. See, the people, when they were confronted with God's law, realized they were not worthy enough to accomplish this. 
Now, does this mean God believed that they were somehow unworthy? It was like God didn't know prior to the Ten Commandments whether or not these people were actually capable of doing this job? No! It was the people who believed they weren't capable of doing it. It was the people who then had to set up their version of a priesthood that God then eventually adapts to make the system work. But it's the people who initiated this idea of some sort of secular, sacred divide. God never did. Now, if we continue to trace this grand theological narrative through the storyline of Scripture, we discover that 1,500 years after Sinai, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's starting to make, I hope it's starting to make a little sense why Jesus was so adamantly fixed on cleansing us from our sins. Because the reason Jesus came to deal with our sin, first and foremost, was because it allowed God to reset the plan. It allowed everything to go back to the way it was supposed to be. When Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for your sins, for our brokenness, he takes all of our unworthiness, all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin upon himself. And as soon as he does that, he becomes the one through whom we are allowed access to the Father. In other words, Jesus becomes the sole intermediary between you and God. You no longer have to go through a priest. There's no second step. Jesus has taken all of that. And he says to me, just as much as he says to you, I love you. You are my child. You are my special chosen holy priest to be my representative to the world. He pulls us in and it becomes clear he is the sole means by which we now have access to God. Again, hear me on this. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. We say this all the time, but have you ever thought about it in this way? Because of what he did, we are, no, we are not God's priests. We are not able to live into this function because of our power or our righteousness or our abilities. No, just like Israel, we should stand there and go, dear God, I am not worthy. I can't do this. But Jesus says, I know. You don't stand here by your grace or your worthiness or your efforts. You stand because of my efforts. You have access to the Father because of my worthiness, because of what I have done for you. And so please, church, come to the Father, Jesus declares receive it and recognize because of what he has done and he alone has done for you. No one is more righteous or more holy than anyone else. We are all equal in God's eyes and we all have equal access to the Father. And that means that all of us, every single one of us, have a job and a responsibility that matters just as much as anybody else's job or responsibility. This is not just the role of the pastor. This was never in there. Never in there. It doesn't matter if you are a CEO. It doesn't matter if you're a marketing executive, if you're a gardener, if you're a janitor, if you're an Uber driver, if you're an engineer, if you're a teacher, if you're a whatever. What you do matters because you matter, because you are a priest. 
And what you do is of great, tremendous significance, and you need to understand that. This is the truth the reformers began to discover in the 1500s. One of the passages they continued to cycle back on to make this point, okay, comes out of 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, the reformers built this entire doctrine to, dis, to destroy this myth of the secular sacred divide. They called it the priesthood of all believers. And it comes right out of 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you aren't familiar with Peter's letters, Peter was writing to normal, everyday people like you and me, Okay. These aren't super Christians. They weren't holy people. They were just normal guys and girls. They were merchants. They were midwives. They were just boat people. Like, they did normal jobs. The only difference between them and us is they were under a tremendous amount of persecution. Tremendous amount. I'm talking on a regular basis. They could feel threats to their life or their families would disown them or they would be kicked out of their cultural situation. Their businesses could be ripped away from them all because of their faith. And so Peter writes First and Second Peter for two purposes. One, as you can imagine, is to encourage them to keep the faith despite the brokenness swirling around them. But also... Peter is writing to them to help them better understand who they are in Christ so they can stand strong. Again, not by their power, not by their worthiness, but by him and his spirit. And the amazing thing is, and this is why I've left the Exodus passage up here, is what Peter ends up doing in 1 Peter chapter 2 is he basically takes this idea out of Exodus where God is calling all people to represent him, and he applies it directly to all Christians. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter declares this, But you, Christian, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. You exist that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what Peter does here? He takes all these promises that were once solely given to Israel, and he says, actually, I'm going to apply it to all the church. And he wants the church to understand fundamentally who are they in Christ, not by their efforts, not by their power, but by Christ. They are a chosen people. They are God's royal priesthood. You are God's holy nation. You are God's special possession. You were once not recognized as the people of God, but now you have received mercy and you are the people of God. And you exist for the sole purpose of bringing honor, glory, and praise to God above all else. Again, not because you're worthy of it, not because you did anything to deserve it, but because that is why Christ came and why you were created from the beginning. That is powerful. But did you also catch, and I I think this is just so incredible to me. Did you also catch, not only does Peter take the Exodus 19 idea, 
And he adds a few other things to it. But did you also catch he shifted the tense? Anybody catch this? Look at it. In, verse 9, or in, in Exodus 19, it begins, Now if you obey me fully, then this will happen. In other words, the Exodus is a future promise. Right? It's a contingent clause. But look at what Peter does. But in Christ, you already are a present reality. And why are you already? Because again, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you have brought to the table. It's what Christ has already done for you. And if you claim Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King, He alone looks at you and makes these promises over you that you are His chosen people, that you are His holy nation, that you are His special possession, that you have received mercy, not by your efforts, but by His efforts and righteousness alone. One other thing, though. Did anybody see in any of this the you meaning pastors only? Did anybody else catch that it was actually just written to missionaries, you know, those super holy Christians? Or people in full-time professional pastoral ministry, church work? No. Because that's, that's not the way it works. In fact, this was one of the other incredible things the reformers tapped into. There is not intended to be a difference between any of us. This whole divide between the priesthood and the laity, it doesn't work anymore. Martin Luther has this great quote. Can we throw the quote up there? Luther says this, let everyone therefore who knows himself to be a Christian be assured of this, that we are all equally priests. That is to say, we all have the power in respect to the ministry of word and sacraments. As, as Luther and the other reformers rightly pointed out, every single one of us is equally or co-equally capable of serving as a pastor. In fact, every single one of us is co-equally equipped to serve as a pastor, to represent Christ, our King, to the world. Not because of your education, again, not because of your righteousness, not because of your efforts, but because of what the Holy Spirit has done in taking hold of your life. Now, you may be wondering, if that's true, then why on earth are we paying you, John? (laughs) Feels like we could really make that budget shortfall come into, you know, no problem, we could take care of that. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think that is one of the best questions, and it's a question we don't actually talk about very often of why we have pastors, and I want to take a two-minute tangent to kind of explain why pastors exist, okay? The very simple answer is to why we have ordained pastors who lead us, people like myself and Pastor Chris, is because fundamentally, we need somebody to lead us. It's primarily about order, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about this. Yes, every single one of us is capable of serving as priests. Every single one of us is qualified to be pastors. All of us are pastors. All of us are missionaries. But if every single one of us showed up on a Sunday morning and decided to run this service how we deemed fit, it would be chaos. It'd be an absolute nightmare. If you think our worship wars are terrible now... 
just watch out, right? You're going to have some drum kid coming in on their marching band, and then the other kid on like a, a harpsichord. Is that a thing? Yeah. Somebody's on a harmonica. Some kid's on a kazoo. Another kid just believes we should never use any worshipful instruments, and we just do whatever we want. It's like, guys, that would be a nightmare. So primarily, the reason we have pastors is because we say, look, we need somebody to give us some structure, and we want you to be the person who leads us. This is also why, however, we make our pastors jump through some major hoops before we call them to be pastors. We require our pastors to go to seminary. We require our pastors to do internships, to serve under another pastor for a long time. And whether you knew this or not, in order to be ordained in a denomination, you have to go to other people who don't know you and be grilled by them on your theology and your competency for ministry before they ever sign off and say, yeah, the church can actually hire you on this. We have all these hoops that pastors are supposed to jump through because at the end of the day, we want to know that the person, be it a man or a woman, the person who stands here before us and who we have asked to lead us is fully capable of helping me better grow into what it means to follow Christ. Doesn't mean they're more qualified than I am. It just means if they're going to serve as my coach, I want to make sure they at least have some training in this. Another example of this, and Pastor Chris uses this analogy, and I, I think this is spot on. If you're being sued, anybody can give you legal advice, right? Sure, I'll give you legal advice all you want. But at the end of the day, if you're being sued, wouldn't you rather go to somebody who's at least been to law school? Somebody who is actually capable of passing the bar, not failing the bar? Somebody who is actually recognized by others as a legal authority? If you're being sued, those are the people you want to go to. And the same way it works for pastors. Yes, you are equipped. Yes, you are capable. Yes, you should be going and doing ministry. But the reason we call and ordain pastors is very simply because we want to make sure the people leading us in worship, the people teaching us stuff, are, help, are actually qualified, are best qualified to do this. But I want to be clear on this. We do not call pastors. We do not ordain pastors because somehow we believe that they are more holy than us. Or I hate this one. We do not call pastors. We do not believe we, pastors are ordained because they somehow have a better connection to God than you do. Do you know how many times I hear that? It's always when I go over to dinner, I have to pray. Okay? <laughs> always. The truth is, at the end of the day, you have to understand, I know too many pastors. I went to school with all of them. I know Pastor Chris very intimately. Guys, we are normal people. And it weirds us out when you elevate us. It just weirds us out. Because from our perspective, what we do in here is exactly what you are to do out there. If anything, from our perspective, and I want you to hear me on this. As a pastor, I say this. I actually think what you do matters more than what I do. I believe what you contribute matters more than I do. Because here's the thing. As soon as people hear I'm a pastor, they get weird. They do. They shut me out of their life. They, they cut me out. It's just weird. Or they get really confessional and they tell me how often they go to church or whatever it is. People get weird around me. 
But if you also are a pastor, if you also are called to be a missionary, you get to go into places that I will never get to go. Whether it's your office spaces, your family circles, you know, wherever, your neighborhoods, you are the pastor in that place. You, therefore, get to represent Christ with all that you say and all that you do. You get to be his physical representation in those spaces. If you're just waiting on me to go and do it, the vast majority of the world will never get to encounter a pastor, mainly because they're weirded out by us. But if you understand that's your role, that you are the image of the invisible God, that you get the opportunity to express his grace, his love, his mercy to people, you get to represent him in all you say and do, that should cause you at a minimum to sit up a little bit. That should cause you at a minimum to go, ooh, <laughs> that's a big job. That is a big job. And that is a little worrisome if, again, it was about your efforts, if it was about your power, if it was about your skill level. And it's why if you go back and you read First Peter, especially, especially the first two verses, you're going to discover that you can't do this on your own power. You have to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you. You have to say, Lord, how do I handle this situation? Lord, how do I represent you here? How do I deal with this business transaction in a way that honors you the most? And you have to filter everything you know through the Holy Spirit. Or there's no way we're going to be able to do this well. And if you're thinking, well, that's just because you don't know as much about the Bible. Guys, when I show up into the hospital room, when you ask me to show up into those places, I am not qualified for it. I don't know what got this in your mind that I am somehow super holy and righteous enough to walk into the most broken areas of your life. No. The difference is I walk in and I immediately pray, Lord God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Please speak through me. The only difference is I just show up. I'm willing to step out there and say, okay, God, I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation. Like, yeah, I got some very basic psychological training but I am heavily dependent upon the Holy Spirit. If that terrifies you, well, guess what? You're just like me, okay? I'm no different than you. I'm no different than you. Where am I in these notes? Oh, I know. So again, this is where I think it's just incredibly interesting. If you can recognize that you are God's chosen people, that you are God's special possession, that you are his people, and that all you say and do reflects back on him. You need to recognize that whatever you do, whatever you say, is reflecting on him. So the way you treat your coworkers, the way you treat your vendors, the way you treat your employees, the way you treat your customers, all of that reflects back on him. Just as much as the way you treat the poor, the refugee, the immigrant, all of that reflects back on him. Just as much as what you post on Facebook reflects him. Just as much as what you say at the water cooler reflects him. You have to be mindful that many people are never going to show up to a church building. Many people are never going to read this book. You are the only expression of Christ they may ever get in their life. So again, oh, it's kind of scary. It's why Peter immediately follows in verse 11 and 12 with these words. Can we throw it up there? He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage, which wage war against your soul. 
Instead, Peter encourages us, live such good lives among the pagans. Those who don't know God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Since all of us represent Christ to the world, since all of us are his priests, Peter says we ought to live in such a way that when, even though people accuse us of doing wrong, they would look at the quality of our work, the integrity of our faith, and they couldn't help but go, dang. And it would cause them to be like, who is this God of theirs that they are living to honor in such a way? I want to know that God. Notice again, it's not about you changing their life. It's not about you changing their hearts. God has to do that work. You are just supposed to give them reason to pause and go, whoa, so that along with us, they can turn in honor and glory in the Lord all day long. Look, I don't know what you do uh, Monday to Saturday. I mean, I hope you've seen I've attempted to the very best of my ability to come up with every job that you could possibly do, but the truth is, Some of you got weird jobs, okay? I would never guess what you do. But whatever you do, your primary responsibility, Peter makes clear, is to be the very best at what you do. And so if you're the barista, you need to be the best barista at the block. If you are an IT specialist, you need to be striving to be the most competent IT specialist in your company. If you are a title officer, see, I've fitted into a sermon at some point. (laughs) If you are a title officer, you need to be the most Christ-like title officer on the planet. Because whatever you do, church, even if you're a retiree, a stay-at-home mom, an exercise instructor, I don't care, whatever you do, it matters to God. It has significance. And it's an opportunity to honor Him. As I was reflecting on this, I came across this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. I love that I'm just taking everybody with the name Martin Luther and putting them into a sermon. Martin Luther King Jr. has this quote that I thought so beautifully and succinctly summed up this sermon. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, and I actually put it in your bulletin so you can take it with you. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweet streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. How beautiful is that? Guys, I just want to get this into your head. What you do matters. Who you are matters. What you do is no less sacred, no less spiritual than anybody else. So please, I beg of you, please stop buying into and perpetuating this myth. It's just not true. Instead, let us begin to focus on how we can live in such a way that when people who don't yet know God look at the quality of our work, the integrity of our faith, the way we love our families, that it would cause them to stop and go, wow, I want to know what makes them different. And that it would cause them on the day the Lord visits us to join us in worshiping and glorifying the Lord. That's what we exist for. And this is all possible as soon as you begin to recognize what you do matters. What you do, who you are, everything about it is 
sacred. And therefore, my hope, my prayer, is that through it all this week, even your mundane, everyday, ordinary activities, God would look at the way you live your life and it would cause him to smile with the biggest grin on his face. It would cause him to look down at you and just go, well done. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for that is who you are. And we desire so deeply for you to take control of our lives so that through all aspects of our lives, from our nine to five, to the errands we run, to the jobs we do around the house, Lord, that all of it would serve to bring you ultimate honor and glory. Lord, we confess that all of us at times have bought into the false myth that we have somehow begun to believe that aspects of our life do not matter to you, and so who knows what we're doing with those aspects. But Father, I pray that we, our hearts would be captured by the words of your Spirit, by the word of your Scriptures, and that it would pierce us so that we can begin to see all aspects of our life as an opportunity to honor you, all aspects of our life to put a giant smile on your face. And Lord, may you truly be pleased and honored and glorified when you look at our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.